We're studying Proverbs 1 through 9. It's God's word on how to live wisely. God breathed these words out 3,000 years ago through Israel's king Solomon. Solomon was David's son. He was one of the ancestors of King Jesus, the king who would be crucified for our sins, raised from the dead to prove that he can forgive sin and conquer death and rid creation of the curse. Solomon is one of the ancestors of King Jesus. And even though King Solomon was horribly flawed in many ways, he also foreshadowed Jesus in a few significant ways. One of those ways that Solomon foreshadowed Jesus was his ability to teach about how to live well in a way that was accurate, memorable, and beautiful. Solomon foreshadowed Jesus in this way. Each week that I've taught, I've tried to emphasize the definition of wisdom. I've tried to point out that wisdom is a skill. It's the skill of living well. But it's not a skill that you can develop alone. The book of Proverbs repeatedly stresses that living life well involves living with God at the center. So wisdom is a relational skill. It's the skill of rightly relating to God in every area of life. Now today we're nearing the end of our study of these introductory nine chapters to the whole book of Proverbs, and we're encountering chapter 8. Some people consider this to be a very complicated chapter. I pray that you find today's message simple rather than complicated, and I pray that it doesn't just touch your brain, but touches your heart and affects your life. In order to rightly understand Proverbs 8, you need to know that Solomon personifies wisdom. Just like he did in Proverbs 1 and Proverbs 3, Solomon personifies wisdom as a woman and almost like a woman who's giving a sales pitch. Now, What is a personification? A personification takes us back to middle school English class where you learned about various literary devices that authors could use. Personification is a creative writer's way of describing something that doesn't have life as if it's a person. So for example, I could say, I'm thankful that the sun is smiling on us this morning. That's personification. It's talking about the sun as if the sun's a person. But Solomon's personification here goes much deeper. It's a bit more like talking about Rosie the Riveter. Rosie the Riveter embodied the strength of the American woman in the greatest generation. Rosie the Riveter. She embodied a whole set of ideals. Or... We might talk about Mother Nature. This personification of an inanimate thing, it reminds us that creation is always in the business of bringing new life. Seeds are falling into the earth and growing up and giving plants and fruits. and It's reminding us that the seasons go back and forth and there's new life as spring rolls around again. Things like this. Nature isn't a person. 
Mother Nature is a personification of a whole system that's happening. That's Proverbs 8. Proverbs 8 is lady wisdom. She's not a real person. She's a personification of God's wisdom. And she embodies how attractive it is to live life for God. Marrying Lady Wisdom equals committing your life to God. Right? Proverbs 8. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights, beside the street, at the crossroads where there's lots of traffic, that's where she takes her stand. Beside the gates, in front of the town, At the entrance of the portals, she's crying aloud. Here's her call. To you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of man. The children of man refers to all humanity. O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, get sense. Hear, I'll speak noble things. From my lips will come what's right. My mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There's nothing twisted or crooked in them. They're all plain to the one who understands. They're right to those who find knowledge. So take my instruction rather than any amount of silver. Take the knowledge I give rather than the finest gold. For wisdom is more valuable than jewels. And all that you may desire cannot compare with her. In the first 11 verses, Lady Wisdom invites everyone to submit to her way of life, her instruction, in order to gain the life that's priceless, the life you can't put a price tag on. And then in the next verses, verses 12 to 21, she lists out all of her benefits. I, Wisdom, dwell with prudence. That refers to good decision-making. I find knowledge and discretion The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil, pride, arrogance, and the way of evil, and perverted speech I hate. I have good counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight. I have strength. It's by me that kings reign well and rulers decree what's just. It's by me that princes rule and nobles all who govern justly. I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently will find me. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and justice. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness, in the paths of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me, filling their treasuries. You can go through that whole section, verses 12 to 21, and you can just circle all the benefits of wisdom you'll know wise decision-making. You'll know justice. You'll be pleasing to the Lord. You'll have not perverted speech, but healthy speech, and so on and so forth. After describing all of her benefits, then Lady Wisdom explains her history, how long she's been around. Verses 22 through 31. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up, at the first, before the beginning of the earth. 
When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, she's claiming to have existed before creation. Verse 25, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before the Lord had made the earth with its fields or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. So she's saying, I existed before creation and I was an eyewitness of creation. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its boundary so that the waters would not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, or we might say like an architect. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. So wisdom is claiming to have existed before creation, been an eyewitness of creation, and claims to have helped God create the world. And as he did, wisdom says, I was delighting in everything God was making as he made it. That's wisdom's history. And now wisdom concludes. And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear my instruction and be wise. Don't neglect it. Blessed, mark that word blessed. Blessed is the one who listens to me watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. Wisdom ends saying, those who dislike me, those who reject what I offer, will receive the consequence of death. And if you pair it with the previous verse, verse 35, that describes the Lord's delight in those who get wisdom, Solomon's understanding of death here is not mere physical death, but it has to include the Lord's desertion as opposed to his delight, his abandonment of the individual in death. This is horrifying indeed. So what is wisdom doing here in Proverbs 8? Like I said, the clearest way I can describe what's going on is that wisdom is giving a sales pitch. Wisdom is a bit like a life coach who sets up a meeting with you and says, here's what I can offer you. And she's basically saying, I want you to sign up for my life coaching services. I want you to live by my advice, by my plan, by my program. Wisdom is a life coach wanting you to sign up. And you're in a sales pitch. It's like Solomon asks a saleswoman to come into his palace and give all of his cabinet members a sales pitch for the, the way they're going to administer the kingdom. She wants to convince all of these people in front of her that she can really give them good advice, that she can help them live well. And at the end of her presentation, she wants everyone to sign up. She wants everyone to enter into a lifelong contract with her saying, we will let you order our life. And these are the parts of her sales pitch. I tried to point them out as we read. Now I review them. Wisdom uses an attention-grabbing introduction. She basically says, pay attention. 
She says, I never mislead people. I help people live well. And in fact, the kind of life that I can coach people to live is the kind of life that you can't buy with money. In Street Talk today, she's saying, do you want the kind of life that you wouldn't trade for 50 million if you were offered it to give it up? There is a kind of life that you could be offered a massive amount of money for and you'd laugh at it, saying, I wouldn't give up the kind of life I'm living for anything. That's her attention-grabbing intro. And then, Wisdom goes on to list her amenities. There were two times on our trip that we had to figure out a place to stay. And one of the things that you see on hotel listings and on Airbnb listings is the amenities, right? You look at the amenities of a hotel and you say, oh, they have an outdoor pool and a complimentary breakfast and blow dryers in the bathroom. (laughs) Our family can stay there. (laughs) Here, Wisdom explains everything you get if you sign up with her. She says, if you commit yourself to me, you get tons of other benefits. You get careful decision-making skills. You get wise leadership. You get a rightly ordered heart that loves what God loves and hates what God hates. You get enduring wealth. And she sums up her benefits again, saying, you can't put a price tag on them. Those are her amenities. And then the third section, she explains her history. This is the part of the chapter that's the most theologically complicated, and we'll come back to it just a little bit at the end. I simply call it wisdom's history. It would be the equivalent of going to a company website like Harley-Davidson, and one of the major banners on their website is, it's our 120th anniversary. Or going to Smucker's, In their logo, Smucker's has EST-1897. What is that supposed to tell you? It's supposed to tell you this is a good, well-established company with a long legacy. That kind of a thing. That's what Wisdom does here. This is the part of the sales pitch where she takes you through her history. And she says, I've been around a long time. I preceded creation, I observed creation happening, I helped in creation, I delighted in God's creation as he created it. And the importance of this section cannot be overstated. Wisdom is saying, I'm central to creation. Living under my authority is living the way life was created to be lived. The final section is what I would call her clincher. This is the clincher in the sales pitch. It's where she wraps up and she pleads with those sitting in front of her to sign on the dotted line. She says, we must commit ourselves to her way of life. And if we do, we are promised blessing and life. You put the two concepts together and you might say we are promised the blessed life. But as I pointed out, her final word is one of warning. Ignore me. And you'll choose a life that ends in self-destruction and death away from the joy of the Lord. This is wisdom's sales pitch. I'd state the main point like this. God wants you to choose wisdom. 
to experience life as he created it to be lived. God wants you to choose wisdom. He wants you to sign on the dotted line and say, yes, I am going to commit my life to God's way of living because God wants you to experience life as he created it to be lived. Now, in the rest of the message, I want to show you how the passage should shape your life. And I want to shepherd you, really, with six keys that unlock this passage. God wants you to choose wisdom. Key number one that unlocks this passage for your life is this. Wisdom is in a competition for your heart. Proverbs 1 through 9 displays a grand competition, a massive competition of two women. The competition is especially clear if you just read from chapter 7 into chapter 8. In Proverbs 7, the naive man is met in the street by an immoral woman who seduced him with the promise of immediate pleasure. And then in Proverbs 8, the passage we're studying today, there's another woman, the competitor, Lady Wisdom. And she says, if you are simple, I invite you to commit your life to me in order to get something more valuable than anything money can buy. There are two competing women. We're going to see this contrast, especially in chapter 9, where it begins with uh, the invitation of one woman and ends with the invitation of the other. Now, Solomon wrote this chapter, this book, especially to the men who would be leading Israel in the next generation and in the next generations. He was writing to Israel's political class. And yet it applied generally to the whole nation. And it applies to all people today. This first key to unlocking how this should shape our lives is to understand that there is a grand competition for our hearts. Every person is like a war zone. Your spirit, your your will, your affections, they're a battlefield. Do you think of yourself like this? Your spirit is a battlefield on which a war is taking place. Hint, hint, we call it spiritual warfare. And there is a pull. It is a natural pull to say, I want to live by my own rules. I want to live by my own authority. I do not like other people telling me what to do. And there is a call from God saying, don't go down that path of selfish ambition. Don't go down that path. I'm calling you to a different way of life. There is a grand competition for your affections. We're either going to commit ourselves to a loving God and live under his authority, an authority that is sweet and beneficial, it's good for us, or we're going to commit our lives to immorality. That is, to cheating on God in any way and every way we want. 
We're going to live for what we want to live for and not let God tell us what to do. That's the grand competition. It's inescapable. There's a battle for our affections. The second key to unlocking the significance of Proverbs 8 for us is this. Wisdom's call is full of God's grace. This shapes our view of God. Look back at verse 5. And lady, wisdom is particularly concerned for people who are simple. Those who are natural fools. Verse 4 indicates that that's all the children of man. In other words, that's everyone. All of humanity. And yet, what should amaze us as we step back from Proverbs 8 is that lady wisdom is pleading for all who are foolish to commit their life to God and learn wisdom. In other words, this chapter is full of God's grace. God doesn't want fools to destroy themselves. He doesn't want fools to face his judgment. He wants fools to get wisdom. For all those who naturally come into this world living a life of selfishness headed for death, God wants to rescue us. We should come out of reading Proverbs 8 and realize, wow, God's full of grace. He wants to rescue me, not judge me. Proverbs 8 should shape our view of spiritual warfare and it should shape our view of God as a God of grace. Third, wisdom invites you to experience life as God created it to be lived. Here is what is most central in the chapter. Wisdom is emphasizing her role in creation. And she's basically saying, just like the best person to write the owner's manual for the car is the car's manufacturer. I can write the owner's manual for human living because I created humans. I helped God in creation. The manufacturer writes the best owner's manual. That's the logic. And of course, that could sound a little bit odd, to say some woman is claiming to be creating, you have to remember this is a personification. It's a a literary device. It's a personification of God's wisdom. But here's why it matters. Wisdom is saying, if you live the life that I recommend, you live the way life was created to be lived. You're not living against the grain of your manufacturer. You're living like you were made. We often say something like, actions have consequences. That's Proverbs 8. We sometimes say you can choose your actions, but you can't choose the consequences of your actions. That's Proverbs 8. That's because that's the way life is created to be lived. You can choose whether you want to live honestly or dishonestly. You can choose whether you want to spend your money carefully or recklessly. But you can't choose the consequences of your choices. You're either going to make choices that are in keeping with the way life is designed to work, or you're going to make choices that are against it. We live in a world that is 
full of messaging that directly opposes Proverbs 8. Our world says, you do you. Throw off constraints. Let it go. Neil deGrasse Tyson, one of the uh, uh, preeminent astronomers, says, since creation has no meaning, we have the exciting opportunity of creating our own meaning for ourselves. You create your own reality. You live your truth. All of these messages directly oppose Proverbs 8. God's message says, you can't live life however you want and expect to flourish. You need to live wisely. You need to align your life with the way it was created to be lived. That's the message of Proverbs 8. Wisdom invites you to experience life as God created it to be lived. Fourth, wisdom foreshadows Christ. This is one point in the debate about Proverbs 8 that is most controversial. And I can, if you want to talk about this, connect with me afterward. I can point you to people who've written on this, who've taken different viewpoints on this, who've summarized the debate through the centuries and things like this. I am not going to rehash the debate at this point. My understanding is that Proverbs 8 is a personification of wisdom, but it is a personification that foreshadows Jesus. And here's what I mean. Just like little lambs for thousands of years before Jesus pointed ahead to Jesus by saying something like this, the lamb said, offer my life as a sacrifice so that your sins can be atoned for. It was foreshadowing Jesus. Just like that, just like the temple in Jerusalem for centuries before Jesus pointed ahead to Jesus when it basically said, come to the temple and you can experience the presence of God. So Lady Wisdom in chapter 8, for a millennium before Jesus pointed ahead to Jesus when she kept saying, This is Lady Wisdom. Find me and you'll find life. Does that sound familiar? Find me and you'll find life. Wisdom is foreshadowing Jesus. I'm just going to work through John. Jesus said, I am the life. John said of Jesus, He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and in him was life. Jesus told his enemies, I have come that my sheep may have life and have life abundantly. Jesus told crowds, Whoever believes in me will have eternal life. John concludes his record of Jesus' life saying, What I've written, I've written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and that by believing in him, by trusting him, by committing your life to him, you may have life. A thousand years earlier, wisdom was foreshadowing. Find me, find life. So, if you are asking today, how do I go on a search for Lady Wisdom? How do I get Lady Wisdom? How do I commit myself 
to a personification. I'd say go on a hunt for who Jesus is, and when you've figured it out, commit your life to him. Wisdom is foreshadowing Jesus. Fifth, wisdom promises the blessed life. Wisdom promises the blessed life. The chapter ends in verses 32 and 34 with wisdom saying, Blessed are those who listen to my instruction, who submit to my teaching. Blessed are those who listen to me. I took a lot of time when we were encountering this word blessed in chapter 3 to point out that this is a loaded term. It goes all the way back to the first page of the Bible because when God first created humans, Scripture says he blessed them. Genesis 1.28. That is, he set humans on a course of life that if they would follow his instruction would lead to flourishing in every way. That was before Adam sinned. That was before he plunged himself and all of creation into an existence that included sin and death. King Solomon knows the Bible well. He didn't always live it well, but he knew the Bible well. And he used this term blessed in a loaded way. Blessed does not merely mean that, you know what? If you follow my, my, my way of life, you'll live a little happier, a little wealthier, a little longer than those who don't. Though, as I've pointed out in this series, that is true. Statistics demonstrate that it is generally true that Christians who are committed to their faith generally are a little happier, a little wealthier, live a little longer. This is true. But that's not the blessing, that's not the mere blessing that Solomon has in mind. It means much, much more. It means you're going to live a life without the curse. You will experience life as it was created. You will experience life without sin and death. You will live a life that forever flourishes in the presence of the Lord. Blessed are those who find wisdom. The only way to experience life as the Creator intended it, the blessed life, is to get Lady Wisdom. Or we would say, follow Jesus. The one wisdom was foreshadowing. Here's where we end. Wisdom demands that you make a choice. This is a sales pitch. Wisdom wants Solomon's sons to choose a life that's ordered according to God's wisdom. Everyone who reads Proverbs 8 should come out of reading the chapter and say, I have a choice in front of me. I'm either going to commit my life to God's wisdom or I'm going to keep on living, go on living as if I know better. There's no third option. And this is precisely why Solomon uses personification. Okay, we're wrapping up. But you got to put on your thinking cap and think, why would Solomon use personification to teach this message to his boys? Solomon personifies God's wisdom as a beautiful woman 
in order to emphasize that wisdom is beautiful. It is attractive. It's not a dreary life. It's a thrilling, beautiful life. And he's emphasizing that getting wisdom involves a committed relationship. Wisdom isn't merely informational. It's not like you just need to go out and read a few books. Wisdom is fundamentally relational. You need a committed relationship to God. That's why Solomon uses personification in the first place. Because he's trying to say, this is attractive as a way of life. And this way of life has at the very center a committed relationship. Getting wisdom is like getting married. It is making a decisive, lifelong commitment that you basically renew every day. Getting wisdom is like getting married. Just like marriage, a commitment to God is not something you just sort of ease into. No. You commit to it. It's something you decisively enter into. It's like marriage. And just like marriage, a commitment to God is not something that's been there, done that. It's not like you can say, you know what? I've got the marriage certificate up on the wall. Now I can live however I want. No. Wisdom, getting wisdom, is like marriage. It's a decision, a commitment that you make and that you keep on renewing. You say, Lord, I committed my life to you years ago or months ago or days ago and I commit my life to you again. I commit to living for you today, not for myself. Just like marriage, a relationship with the Lord is lived out. It's It's renewed and deepened through the years. It's a personal commitment that's much like marriage. And so Proverbs 8 forces a choice. If you are a Christian and you have devoted yourself to God in a marriage-type commitment, every one of you right now, every one of us right now, needs to renew that commitment. Lord, I have committed my life to you. I am going to commit my life to you again today and by your grace every day until I see your face. I have committed myself to you. God, keep me faithful. I want to be faithful to you my whole life. It is a commitment of exclusive devotion that is enduring, ongoing, renewed continually. And if you have not decisively committed your life to Christ, I urge you, take whatever time is necessary to search it out. Read the gospel according to John to find out who Jesus claimed to be, who his followers were convinced he was. Search for him. He says if you search for him, you'll find him. Go on an all-out hunt to figure out who Jesus is and what it means to commit your life to him. And then do it. Choose. Decisively commit. 
I end with these words, filling them in with Christ. Blessed forever is the one who commits to Christ. Whoever gets Jesus gets life. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray that you would shape our lives with this precious chapter. Thank you for waking us up to the warfare that's going on. Thank you for exalting Jesus before us as the one who created us, as the one who has life, as the one who can give life, as the one who promises life to all who follow him. Lord, thank you for helping us to see in a starker contrast the messaging of our world with the messaging of your word. Lord, we can't live however we want and expect to flourish. God, I pray that you would give us humble hearts before you, give believers humble hearts of recommitment, give unbelievers humble hearts to search out your word, to find Christ, to call out on him to be their Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.